Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys? Yeah? Anybody but Bob doing good? Yeah, you guys are good? It's okay, you're in church. I understand that, you know, when you walk through the door, the Holy Ghost snatches your voice, but if you ask him for it back, you could say something. He'd give it back. He's good like that. Um, I, I really just, I, I feel like there's a lot on what, what Madison said that, um, that you know, it, that God doesn't, he doesn't just want to, um, to be God in that situation or for that moment for you, but he also wants to, from that day forward, be God who actually is speaking things to you that keep you from letting what you've been through be the thing that causes the way that you think. Um, to be the way it is, that like it's it's not enough just to have his promise in the moment, and then live life from that day forward more affected by what I went through than by who he is and who he's promised to be. And so, um, so I just I, I agree with what Madison said and what we just prayed for that that um, that if cynicism or or, or doubt or or the idea, or the temptation to think, well, God, if you're good, then how come? Listen, we we wouldn't we should never. I I listen. I've been there. Like I'm not saying. Don't do that. I'm saying, like, if we ever find ourselves in a position of saying, God, if you're good, then how come? We have lost sight of who he is and what he's done for us, and we are allowing a situation to be the barometer for his goodness. And we're saying, God, your goodness is determined by this situation's outcome or by the lack of outcome that I'm seeing so far in this situation. And, it, and, and when that happens, it's simply just a, a, a reminder. It's not something you don't take condemnation in that. God's not in heaven, you know, shaking his finger angrily at you. It's he's in heaven pouring out his heart saying, oh, if you, if you just see my goodness, you would never find yourself in that place of questioning. And it, it's, it's time to just change our perspective a little bit and back up because sometimes those circumstances are so close. They're just so fear. They're right in front of us, and they're consuming our attention and our thoughts. If we would back up and zoom out a little bit and, and get our perspective right again, we would see that, that, that God is love, and that because he loved us, he sent his son to die on a cross for us. While we were in sin, while we deserved nothing but anger, punishment, and wrath, he chose to be good. He chose to be loving. He chose to be kind and send his son to die on a cross for us, and that is the proof of his love. And, and forever the cross is the reminder that, that not only is he good, but he's good towards us. And not only does he, is he love, but he's loving towards us. Not only is he kind, but he's kind towards us. And so if we ever find ourselves saying, well, God, if you're good, then how come? Just take a second and back up and have a higher perspective and remember that everything that we face in this life, Paul said, this momentary light affliction. And he wasn't just talking about stubbing his toe. This is a man who was beaten to the point and stoned to the point that they thought he was dead. Left for dead, covered in stones. But he's got this perspective that says that, that, that this life is, is an inch on a string that is a trillion infinite miles long. And so when he gets that perspective, he can look then, because if, if he doesn't have an eternal perspective or a bigger perspective, if he's not keeping what Jesus did for him and, and on the cross and what Jesus was doing in him at that time, if he doesn't keep that perspective, then laying there being stoned would cause you to ask questions of God, like, well, if you're so good, then how come? 
God, if this, is, if this is serving you, then how come? God, if I'm really being obedient, if you really have called me to do this, you ever been in that place where you're doing something and you feel like it's what God's called you to do and you face rejection or you face anger or hostility or any of those things and you could be so tempted in that moment to say, well, God, if this is what you want, then how come? And Paul had every reason to, he said, he said five times he received the, the beating, which was 39 lashes on his body whereas his skin is opened up. He said, I bear the marks on my body. In other words, I've got scars all over me. But he never finds them in a place of saying, well, God, if you're so good, then how come? He says, because I consider this momentary light affliction nothing when held into the light of eternity. In other words, I have this perspective that's greater than what's right in front of me. And I'm not going to allow what's right in front of me to determine the way that I think, the way that I act, and the way that I live. And so I just pray for that. I pray that that, that perspective would, would be regained in those moments, that we, we don't settle for things, we contend for things, but we also don't allow what we haven't seen in a moment determine our idea of God's goodness, kindness, or grace towards us. Um, so open your Bibles real quickly to, to Jude. It's a little short, tiny little book. And there's something in there, I touched on it briefly for a second, and, and it, but it's something that's been kind of rolling around in me, and it ties together with a, with, a, with a verse in Romans that God's really been speaking to me through. You know, that's the great thing about reading the Word of God, is that, that you, you read it, and in one season, you see this aspect of the Word, and then, and then a little bit later, you read that same Word, because it's alive, right? It's living. It's, it's, it's active. It's a, the, the, the way that it's described in the word is that it's not stagnant on paper. In other words, it's not just sitting there on paper. It's actually active and it's living. And so it, not that the, the truth changes, but there's a greater level of truth. So you see this truth. You first get born again and you read something and it means one thing to you in that moment because of where you're at. And then a while later, you read that same verse and you see a whole different side of that verse that you never saw before, a whole different, another la- level of truth, of, of richness, in the word. And so um, I've been discovering things like that for a while. And, and uh, I just want to, there's one of them that I really want to talk about and encourage us with. But in Jude chapter, uh, well, there's only one, one chapter, but uh, verse 24, this is Jude's writing this letter to the church. And, and he's, he says, I, I, he begins the letter talking about how he just really wanted to, to write to them and, and just kind of pump them up about the, the common faith that they shared. In other words, he was just excited that there was other people who saw this Christ and understood this new life that we could have in him. And he was excited about that. He said, but I find myself having to warn you to contend for the faith. In other words, I wanted to just write you and just be so excited about what God's doing, and I am, but I also saw some things in that made me feel like, man, I really need to just encourage you to contend for the true faith, that, that there's that there's maybe things that, that are being taught or said, or I'm starting to hear things uh, from you guys, or, or people are saying about you guys, that leads me to believe that maybe something's being watered down, that maybe something's been introduced, that maybe your walk, you've been walking with the Lord, and you started with such great joy, but then you run into a few obstacles, and all of a sudden you're starting to look at them more than you're looking at him. And so Jude's, it's kind of a corrective letter a little bit, but then he ends it with this. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that's alive. That as we read from it and we, we speak from it, God, that, that you take these words and, and you, you do more than just put them into our mind. God, that they are actually seed that goes into our heart and starts producing fruit in our lives. God, that it changes us. It changes the way that we see. It changes the way that we think. 
It changes what we expect in life. God, that our expectations would be based on your word and not our experience. God, that we would see any experience that doesn't line up with your word as a place that's less than your best, God. And that we would contend for only your best in our lives. I thank you for that. I thank you for the promises we have in you and who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so Jude's writing this letter. He writes all these things about, you know, things to watch out for, to be careful for, and things like that. And then it's, at the, it's to the very end. And, and it's his benediction, kind of. It's his, it's his ending of the letter. And this is the thing he wants to leave them with. And he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. I believe that means for both him and for us. That I believe Jesus has great joy in making us stand before the Father blameless. And when we stand before the Father blameless, there's a great joy that fills our hearts. That it's both. It's not just Jesus saying, okay, go ahead, be joyful. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm, I'm kind of over it. I've done it so many millions of times. Like, it's not, it used to be a big, big thrill. No, no, Jesus, every time he can present us before the Father blameless, there's this great joy because he's seeing what he died on a cross to accomplish come to fruition. Like he died and shed his blood so that you could stand before God, know him as Father, and stand before him blameless. And there's great joy on our parts, but I believe there's also great joy on his part because he's seeing the reward of his suffering. He's seeing that the faithfulness and that what he endured on the cross was worth it because you're standing there in the place that his blood died for you to stand. That his blood was shed for you to stand. And so, so he says, listen to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. And, and I was just, I talked to us a little bit last week. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think that we get this picture of Jesus as being the one who comes to pick us up after we stumble which he is. You know, if you're to stumble, there's a part of grace that comes to you and he lifts you up. You know, it says that he's the lifter of your head. And, and certainly that could mean like, you know, if you feel shamed and, and guilty and downtrodden and, and you're, you kind of just are down, he comes and he lifts your head, right? But I also believe there's another part of this where it's actually not just him lifting your head when you're down, but it's he's the lifter of your head. In other words, he's able to lift your head to where your eyes are locked in on him, and then he holds your head there so that you're not looking down and looking around so that you're not stumbling, right? And, and naturally, how would we keep from stumbling? Like if you're walking down a trail, we took the kids hiking um, two weekends ago in Paris Mountain, and it was the first time Aaliyah had gone um, hiking since the accident, you know, and, and she's, she's still healing in her head. She has a plate there, and we have to be just really careful about, you know, bumps and injuries and stuff like that, but we also want to just start challenging her muscles again and really working on her strength and pushing her, you know, and so we decided we would go hiking, and we went to Paris Mount. We did the Sulphur Spring Trail, and we went up the hard way and then down the easy way, and as you're going up this trail, there's, there's these tree roots, and there's some sections of it where it's really steep, and you actually have to kind of hold on ahead of you as you're going up, and, 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 and then Patty was telling Aaliyah, Aaliyah, make sure you look where you're stepping. Make sure you look where you're stepping so that you don't get your foot caught on a root, so that you don't step on a rock or, or your foot doesn't slip. Just keep looking where you're stepping. And that is the, the, the natural way to not stumble, is to look where you're stepping. But I believe that Jesus is saying, listen, you don't have to look down to keep from stumbling. In fact, if you would look up, if you would let me lift your head to where you're looking at me, you would actually walk without stumbling. And it's not because your eyes are scanning everywhere for what's wrong. It's because your eyes are fixed and locked on the one who's right. And so he says to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Like we've accepted the idea of Jesus as savior who picked me up when I stumbled or who picks me up when I stumbled. But what if 
there's another part of Jesus where his lordship is actually able to keep me from stumbling. Where he, he will run to me and pick me up every single time I stumble. But what he would really love to do, what he's able to do, is to keep me from stumbling and needing to be picked up constantly by his lordship. So, uh, so now with that in mind, turn to Romans chapter 5. In, uh, uh, we'll start in verse 18, but here Paul is writing this letter, and Romans is amazing because it's, it's just Paul laying out this case for, for the gospel and for grace and for living by the Spirit, and, and he, he, talks, he, he lays out so many important principles of the Christian faith in Romans so clearly. Um, and here he is in chapter 5, in verse 18, he's talking about how everybody became sinful through the sin of Adam, and then everybody would become justified or could be justified through the righteousness of, of Jesus. So he says, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. How, how many are many? When it says the many there, is that like just the special few? You think it means everyone. So you think that through one man's disobedience, when he says the many were made sinners, he means everyone was made sinners. Me too. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. You notice he uses the same term for the number of people that were made sinful through the disobedience of Adam as he does through, as he, as he does the number of people who would be made righteous through the obedience of Christ. I don't know what that does to your theology about who can be saved. But to me, anybody who was made a sinner through the disobedience of Adam has the chance of being justified through the obedience of Christ. Otherwise, he would have used different words to describe how many were made sinful and how many were made righteous, could be made righteous. Then he says, the law came in so that transgression would increase he talks about this in another part. He says, I was alive once apart from the law, but the law came and I died. In other words, the law came to show people actually how far they were from where God wanted them to be and that they would see that, 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 that sin had increased. So the law came so that transgression would increase. How many know, like, if, you, if, you, if you're in a room and the only rule is don't touch the microphone, that's the only rule in this room, you know that anything you do apart from touching the microphone is okay. Now, if I say, don't touch the microphone and don't touch the curtains, anything you do besides touching the microphone and the curtains. As, but then the law, now, now as law increases, transgression increases because every time there's more things that you can do that are wrong, there's more chance that you have of doing the wrong thing and transgressing. So Paul's saying, listen, there was a time where I lived and I didn't even know what I was doing was wrong. I was alive once apart from the law. I didn't have any idea that what I was doing was wrong. You have a little baby. They have no idea that they're not supposed to touch something until you tell them no. Now you've made a law. Now transgression increases because every time they do what they were told not to do, it's a transgression. So Paul said, I was alive once. Apart from the law, the law came and I died. The law came and I understood. Oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. Wow, I've missed it. Here I was thinking that I was living this perfect, righteous life. And then the rules came. And I understood how far off I was and how badly I'd come short of the glory of God. He says, so the law came so that, sin would, so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So 
I've always read this and, and heard this and thought of this as that as sin increases, grace increases for the forgiveness of those sins. And that is true. And, and I think that like when you first become born again, that's a comforting thing to understand that no matter how bad I was, that grace was better. Like that, that no matter how much sin I, there was in my life, there was more grace. And, and that was the first understanding I had of this scripture. But as I walk with him and I start to understand grace and I start to see that grace is not simply just something for the forgiveness of my sins, but it's actually something that empowers me to live the life that I'm called to live. I know this because in the book of, um, in the book of John, when it's talking about Jesus, it says the word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Luke says, when Mary, Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to, Gal- to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, Jesus, and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. How much sin did Jesus have? Well, then why was grace in him and on him? See, if grace is simply just forgiveness of sins, Jesus had no need for grace. None. Because at this point, he's born perfect. He's the spotless lamb. He doesn't need grace if it simply means the forgiveness of sins. Now, the forgiveness of sins is, is, is included and is covered by grace, but it also is more than that. And I believe that the grace that was on him and the grace that was in him was not only what, uh, what, what, uh, what would forgive our sins, but what it was what he needed and what empowered him to actually live the life that God called him to live. So what if this verse in Romans could also mean this? Because Paul later says in, in verse 6, he says, so am I saying then we should continue to sin so that grace would abound? No. So in other words, he's saying, listen, I'm not saying that, that we should just sin more so that grace can abound more. In other words, I'm not even talking about sin so much here in this to you when I'm writing this to you or when you read that. If the idea that you get is, well, then the way for grace to increase is for people to sin more, he says, no. Look, anyone that uses grace as an excuse to sin more doesn't understand grace to begin with. If you understood that that grace came through the suffering of Jesus and the shedding of his blood, why would you want to use that as a license to live less than the life he's called you to? And so what if it means this? What if it means that the world definitely does grow darker as time goes on, as the word says? What if you have the ability to sin in your hand at all times? In a way that wasn't there before. What if everywhere you go, the idea of what is sin has changed so drastically in the past 50 years that we have become a country that was run on basic moral principles that lined up with the Word of God to a country that says all of that stuff actually isn't true, and as long as you don't hurt anybody else, do what feels good. So as the world grows darker, as sin increases, grace also increases. So what if he's telling us this? What if he's saying, as the ability to sin increases, so does the ability or grace to actually live without falling into the temptation that's in front of you because God's not in heaven watching sin and the ability to sin increase without actually increasing the grace that's on our lives to keep us from walking in sin. 
So what if it's not just me being forgiven when I sin, which is what grace does, part of what grace does, but it's actually the power of God to keep me from there, or as Jude said, the power of Jesus to keep me from stumbling. Isaiah told us in chapter um, 60, he's writing about the end times, he says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. As the earth grows darker and darkness covers the people, the grace of God is actually supposed to increase in our lives to where we become ones who shine brighter and brighter as the light grows darker and darker. In other words, we're supposed to be people that maintain in the face of things getting darker around us. Our light doesn't get brighter. You can't get brighter than Jesus. The way our light shines brighter is as things get darker around us, our light stands out even more. Turn a flashlight on in this room. It doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. But turn all the lights off and that flashlight suddenly becomes so bright. Everybody can see it. It's a beam that shines up into the air, and all you can see maybe is where it hits the ceiling when all the lights are on. But you turn all the lights off, and you turn that flashlight on, and suddenly that beam starts to illuminate everything. And and Isaiah said, listen, as things grow darker, God's uh, uh, plan for your life, for his intention for your life, it's not that you would grow darker with the world. It's that you would stand in that place that grace brought you to so that as everything around you gets darker, you actually shine brighter so that people are drawn to the light of your shining. Think about this. It wasn't that different 50 years ago for somebody to stand on the word of God when it came to a lot of social issues. As the world heads away, how much more do we stand out in the world when we stay in the same place that we were 50 years ago, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, because the word of God is unwavering and unchanging and because we're anchored in this place and we say, I have come to this place where I've submitted my life to the word of God and I can't change just because there's a bunch of people around me that are saying, well, that was then. No, he's the God that was yesterday, today, and forever. So my position is fixed in him. I can't be moved. It says, I shall not be moved, right? What does that mean? It means I, not only shall no one else move me, I can't move myself. Because he placed my feet on solid ground. And he's an anchor for my soul and my hope. Come on, think about this, you guys. What if grace is actually on us, not just so that when we sin, you can go to him? How many of you guys have ever heard the, the verse in Hebrews? We can draw boldly to the throne room of grace in our time of need. But turn there real quick. So, so Jesus was full of grace, which is why he could give grace, because what I have, I give you. You understand that everything the world needs should be found in the people who are following Jesus. Peter and John went to pray. They met a blind man on the way. Come on, you know this. He held out his palms, asked for alms, and this is what Peter did say. See, we learn this stuff as kids and then forget it as adults. Because in that song is is an amazing principle. He says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. It says, and as he reached down, 
and grabbed the man's hand and pulled him to his feet. His ankles were straightened, and he went walking and leaping and praising God. You know how many principles are contained in that one little kid's song? Because in that principle, we're teaching ourselves that we actually carry something that's an answer to the problems that the world is facing because of Christ in us, because of the name of Jesus, because of the nature and character of God that's being reproduced inside of us by the Spirit of God that lives in us. But also beyond that, think about this. It says, as he reached down and pulled him up, then his ankles were straightened. In other words, it wasn't enough for him to just say something. He actually had to do something. He could, it says, as he reached down, when did his ankles straighten and be healed? When Jesus actually put an action to his words and not just, or Peter, I'm sorry, not just say something to him, but actually care enough to walk over to him, grab a hold of him, and actually have the faith that if I pull this man to his feet, he has to be healed. He has to be. Otherwise, he's crashing to the ground. See, that's where... That's where faith is exhibited. Him just saying something in that moment apparently wasn't enough because his ankles weren't healed when he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It doesn't say as he said that, the man's ankles were straightened and he stood to his feet. It says, and as he reached down and grabbed him by the hand and pulled him up, then his ankles were straightened. The world is waiting for people that not only know what to say, but they actually live it to the point that they follow it up with action. That you're so convinced of the truth of God's word, not just about healing, about every area of life, that you're so convinced of the principles of God's word that you'll say that to people but you'll also act on it as well and you'll put your faith out there and say I believe this so much that I'll step out and risk looking like a fool because I believe what I'm telling you to the point that I will reach down and grab a hold of you and pull you up and trust that what I spoke will come to be not because of who I am but because of the Christ in me that's what I have that's what I carry okay Uh, that someone needed to hear that was free. So Hebrews chapter 6, right? I think it's 6. Therefore, since we have a high priest, no, it's 4. I think it's 4.14. Sorry, Stan, I think I wrote down 6. I'll read it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So maybe that grace that was on him wasn't for the forgiveness of his sins. It was the way that he was tempted in all ways and yet didn't succumb to the sin. So maybe he needed the grace of God to walk as a spotless lamb. What if we were told that those who claim the name of Christ must walk in this earth as he walked? That would be a radical concept. But the word says that. So if you are to walk the way that he walked, then you probably need the grace that he needed. And it's not just to forgive you when you don't walk as he walked. It's to enable you to actually walk as he walked. So we're never going to sin? What does that matter? That's not, our, our goal isn't to find out what, how everybody else can't do it or why you can't do it. Our goal is to say that this is the standard that Jesus called us to. And if we're aiming for that standard, we'll come a whole lot closer than if we're aiming for a standard that says I'm always going to sin. You just think about that. Where's your target? Is your target, well, everybody sins? 
Aim towards that target and watch where you land. Is your target, Jesus called us and said, you should be holy as I am holy. That we should walk as he walked. That as the Father sent him into the world, so also we, I send you. That he said that Jude wrote, and inspired by the, by, the word of, by the Spirit of God, that he's able to keep me from stumbling. If that's my goal, watch how much closer I come to walking like Jesus if I'm aiming there. Where would, why would we ever put our aim at the worst possible scenario when Jesus is offering us the best? And then we justify it with, well, so what are you saying? You're perfect? No, I'm saying he is, and he called me to be like him. Come on, this is in your Bible. It's in mine. It's challenging. It's encouraging. He says he's, he's acquainted with our weakness. He knows what it's like to be a man and be tempted. This is how you know that he lived as a man. Yes, he was always God, but he put aside his deity, made himself for a time lower than angels. He had to because it says in James that God cannot tempt, nor is he tempted with sin. So if Jesus lived as God, there's no way that he can be tempted. So he did it as a man because only a man could be tempted. Come on, the Bible can't contradict itself. So if it says that he was tempted in every way and God cannot be tempted with sin, then that means when he faced temptation, he faced it as a man. So now all of a sudden, it's not just, well, yeah, that was Jesus. That's our big brother who called us to be like him, who's the firstborn of many brethren. Get over saying, so are you, are you saying that someone could live their whole life without sinning? Why do we want to argue with something that Jesus called us to? And find a reason that it can't be true rather than saying, if that's where he called me, that's where I'm going. And if along the way I slip, he's able to pick me up. But I'm believing that along the way, he's also able to keep me from stumbling. That if, that if sin is increasing, so is the grace that is able to keep me from sin. I'm making myself so excited with this. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all, sin, sin, in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I have heard this rightly this declared that, you know, if you sin, you can come boldly because of the blood of Jesus. And there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation. And that is 100% true. If you miss the mark, you don't have to stay outside of the courts of God. You don't have to stay outside his presence. You're not escaping it anyways. But you're not on probation. He doesn't say, okay, well, you screwed up. Let's see you go three days, four days without doing that again, and then maybe you can come to me and you can enter into my presence timidly, shyly, and looking not at me and hoping maybe you can sneak in. That's not what it says. It says we can boldly come before the throne of grace in our time of need. But, but look what this says if you read this in the original language. He says we, we receive mercy. That Greek word there is compassion. And he says to find grace to help in our time of need. What if this is actually less about going to him when we've sinned and going to him when there's temptation or when there's weakness or when we're vulnerable? Because he says you'll find help in your time of need. Anyone ever looked into that word help? I just did recently. And I never thought to. I don't know why. 
I guess I wasn't thinking along this train of thought. That's why it's so amazing the scripture can mean so many different things and be true on so many different levels because it's alive. That word help there um, means aid, and it was a specific kind of aid. It's talking about the frapping of a boat. Everybody know what to frap a boat is? No. It's not to make a milkshake with a boat. It actually is what they would do when a boat that was deemed seaworthy, that was out in the ocean, encountered a storm that was straining it and, te- te- and, and threatening to tear it apart and sink the ship. They would wrap it with rope or with chains around the hull, especially around the parts that were vulnerable. So if they noticed that the, that the back of the hull was straining and the boat was trying to tear itself apart because of the waves that were coming, they would take ropes and they would wrap it around that area to strengthen it, to keep it from coming apart so that the boat could actually continue to sail into the storm without being torn apart, without being sunk, and without having to turn around and try to go back to where it came from. So, so put this into what we're talking about today. So you find yourself in a place where you're feeling vulnerable or weak or you've just been battered by this storm for a little bit. And you realize, like, man, this thing is trying to tear me apart. It says we can come boldly into his throne of grace, into his throne. So we boldly come before him. What does that look like practically? I'll show you what it looked like practically for me. And I'll, I'll use a recent storm that we went through because it's fresh in our minds. But when we were in the hospital, I'll, just, I'll close up with this because I, I feel like we're going to end here and pray for some stuff. But um, when we were in the hospital with Aaliyah, we were fixed on, settled on, and believed in the goodness of God and that she would be okay the minute we got the report that she'd been in an accident. We're driving to the hospital, and I looked at my wife, and I said, she's going to be fine. And at that time, it was a little bit easier to say that because what we heard was she had been in an accident, she was okay, but that she got knocked out, was maybe coming in and out of consciousness, that maybe it was the airbag that had impacted her, and so she was just being taken to the hospital, probably for observation. That's what I was told on the way to the hospital. So at that point, there's these little rollers coming at you, and the, the, the boat's just doing this. It's, not a, it's, you know, it's no big deal. This is what this boat's made for. It's designed for this, and it's, the boat is going where God's called it to go. And so these little rollers come. They've been in an accident, and you know the, the ship get, gets rocked a little bit, you know, and there's this little bit of, of, well, we're not in the bay like we were before. We're out in the open water, and this, the waves are starting to come. There's this awareness that, that suddenly we, what, we were in a leadership meeting talking to the leaders about things going forward with the church and all these different uh, things that were going to be going on. And, and we were, we're in the bay and, and, and we're completely fixed on his goodness and celebrating that day his goodness. I preached just before the leadership meeting a message I didn't plan to preach about not being changed by what we see, but being settled in what we believe so that when we go into something, we stay fixed on it with no idea that I was just strengthening myself in the Lord, that speaking these things was coming out of me, but it was also going back into me, and it was preparing me for something we were about to go through. And so we're on our way to the hospital, and I've got Patty's hand, and she's, she's just got this sense, and she doesn't tell me, Roy, I know it's worse than what you think, but she, inside she's thinking, it's, it, that, it's not just that. She, ha- she knew. And she's just praying and praying and praying, and I'm telling her she's going to be fine. 
will go there, they'll check her out. They, you know, if you lose consciousness, they always want to make sure that you didn't have, you know, seizures and stuff like that. She probably is just going to get checked out. We'll go in and see her. We'll hang out. They might keep her for observation for a little while, and then we'll go home. You know, her car's totaled. No big deal. We can get her another car. You know, insurance will cover it. And that's where my mind was. When we get to the hospital, and, uh, and I go to the front, and I say, um, we're here to see Aaliyah Gisi, and the guy says, I don't, I don't see, looks in the computer, says, I don't, I don't see her name. I said, oh, she was in a car accident. He said, where was the accident? I said, it was in Greer on Highway 101. He said, hmm, that's weird. They normally wouldn't bring someone that was in an accident on Highway 101 here. They'd bring them to the Greer Hospital. He said, unless it was like a severe trauma, but the trauma bay hasn't even been told to prepare for someone that's incoming. Well, he didn't realize that in the time it took for him to look on the computer and start talking to us that the trauma bay had been alerted, that they had an incoming patient, a 15-year-old girl who had suffered a severe head wound and was life and death critical. And so now there's a little bit more waves, and you hear the first little creaking in the boat. And they come and they say, hey, uh, are you guys with uh, the, pa- the family of, of Aaliyah? Yeah. Okay, we're going to bring you back to a, a family waiting room since there's so many of you. There was only three of us there at the time. We're going to bring you back into a family waiting room since there's so many of you so you guys can be comfortable while you're waiting for her. She's on her way in right now. You'll get to see her hopefully in a little bit. We're we go back to this waiting room, and family starts to show up, and the waiting room starts to fill up, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then you start to realize this isn't, like, normal for someone who just got hit by an airbag. And so now, you know, the, the boat's actually starting to slap a little bit as it goes over the waves because it's not just rollers anymore. And it's starting to crash down every time that one of those waves come because you're so far from the bay now and you're in the actual, you realize you're in a storm. But you're fixed on that thing. You're anchored in what you came in anchored in. And I go to the bathroom. I come back. We waited for almost an hour and we're thinking, what in the world is taking so long? This whole time, Patty's got this knowing inside of her that it is serious. And I go to the bathroom. I come back and I see someone standing outside the door, and I see his name tag really close, and it says chaplain. And that crashed over the deck. And I walked into the room, and there's a state trooper with his hat off, with his hands behind his back, standing there looking down at the ground. And there's two doctors sitting on a chair, and the look on their face, they had to tell us something that wasn't just, she got hit by an airbag, we're checking her, for obs- we're observing her to make sure there's nothing wrong. And now the, the, the waves are coming. And he opens his mouth and starts to speak and explains to us what's happened to Aaliyah and explains to us that, that he's about to perform surgery that, that to save her life. And that it's very critical. And that there is the, the chance that she won't survive the surgery. And he walks out of the room and now the boat's getting tested. And in that moment, you can either throw everything overboard and try to turn and get back to where you were, or you can head on into this thing and say, 
will face this. But I had to go get alone for a little bit. And this is what I think it's talking about when it says, get before, come to boldly to the throne of grace. It was me getting alone. You don't have to get alone. I mean, you could do it in a group of people, but it took, for me, I had to just get away from everybody for a minute in that surgical waiting room that they brought us into. And I just had to get alone with him. And, and, and I had to take my eyes and my ears and everything off of what I'd seen and what I had heard because it was, te- it was attempting to tear me apart, literally. It felt like I was being ripped apart on the inside. My boat was being stretched to the point of being torn apart. And I had to get alone. And, and it was like I just came and, 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 and once again became more aware of his presence than the thing that I had been putting my attention on prior to that. See, his presence is always with us. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It's our awareness of him that ebbs and flows. So it wasn't that I had to go find him. He wasn't hiding off in a room that I had to go into to find him. Boldly coming before the throne of grace doesn't look like going physically to a place. It's going to a place where you're aware of him and you're standing before the Father that loves you and suddenly you're staring up into the eyes of love and the eyes of grace. And I'm just, I get alone and I, I, I become aware of him because just simply that, that, that act of removing myself from what I was doing and thinking in that moment to intentionally seek out to talk to the Lord does wonders. You realize most battles are defeated simply in that act? That you take your eyes off whatever it is that's tempting or that's causing you to be fearful or that's trying to dictate what your life is going to look like? That simply taking your eyes off of that and intentionally putting them on him is an act of warfare that defeats almost every attack of the enemy. And you don't even have to go farther than that normally. You could just stand there looking at him. And so now I'm, I'm in his presence and I'm communing with him. And I'm talking to him. And it looks like faith as I'm declaring what he said and grace comes because grace works through faith. By grace you were saved through faith. And so it's me alone with the Lord saying, God, I thank you that you said you're the God who heals. God, I thank you that you said that you would satisfy Aaliyah with long life and show her your salvation. God, I thank you that you said that no weapon formed against her would by any means harm her. I thank you, God, that right now the Spirit of God lives inside of her and is keeping her in that place and will resurrect her to life the same way he did Jesus because it's the same. And all of a sudden, it's, I'm not telling God this and giving him permission. I'm reminding myself of what he's already said. And by faith, I'm suddenly finding this grace. And it's like these ropes from heaven come and start wrapping around and tightening up and strengthening that area that was getting stressed and that was weak. That's what that's talking about in Hebrews. It says when you come before him, you receive mercy, and you receive, which is compassion. So he's there not out of like, oh, I guess I have to let you in because Jesus died on a cross. No, he's not begrudging. He's actually compassionately and lovingly and welcoming you into his presence. And then you receive grace, which is the, the empowering power of God to live and to walk as he's called us to live and walk. And so that it could be a help the way they would wrap a ship in a storm, especially in the area where it was vulnerable. And suddenly that area of my heart that was getting threatened and that was being torn apart gets wrapped by the loving ropes of God's word. And he starts reminding me of his promises over Aaliyah's life. And all of a sudden now I'm worshiping and I'm praising at a time where I should be doing anything but that by the world's standard because I, nothing's changed. 
They haven't even gone into surgery yet, yet I'm focused on his promises and believing that in the face of uncertainty. And all of a sudden, I'm in this place of, God, I'm so thankful for you. I thank you for who you are, God. I thank you that you are the God of miracles. I thank you, Father, for your healing touch in Aaliyah's body. You're so good, Father, and I'm so thankful that her life is in your hands. And all it's not me trying to talk myself into something. It's faith coming out of me as I remind myself of the word of God that's spoken over Leah's life. And grace comes and just binds my heart in that moment. And now all of a sudden, my ship, the storm's still there. He didn't speak to the storm in that moment. I mean, he could have, maybe, you know, I'm, well, he could have, he's God. He could have just said, Aaliyah, be. She could have sat up in a stretcher on her way to a, a surgery, got off and came running into the room and gave us hugs, but he didn't. I don't know why. I know that our lives were used to impact many people over the course of the time that we were at the hospital for 50-something days. But the waves were still there. See, sometimes we have this idea that Jesus is this janitor that goes ahead and makes sure that there's never anything. No, he's able to keep us from stumbling. It doesn't say that he cleans up the roots. It's just that the roots will by no means catch your foot and cause you to fall. You will still walk the same path you were walking, but you're walking with the one who can keep you from stumbling. He doesn't take you down a different path. He takes you down the same path, but it's him that's keeping you because he's the lifter of your head. And when you lift your head, you're staring into his eyes. And when you're staring into his eyes, it's hard to be terrified. And it's hard to want to do something outside of his will and desire for your life. This is what I believe Paul was writing to us. That, yeah, that, that, you know what? The, wor- the, the, the worst sinner can take that verse and say, you know what? No matter how much I sinned, God's grace abounded more. But for the, for the person who's no longer the worst sinner but has been changed and been born again and brought into newness of life, who's now called a saint, it means that it doesn't matter that sin is increasing because the grace, the power to live the life he's called you to live is increasing at a more rapid rate, which means that not only can you stay where you were, it means you can actually shine brighter and brighter as the darkness around you gets darker and darker. And people will actually be drawn to that. Do you realize that there were nurses, there was administrators, there were people that came to us and asked us to pray for them. A lady came to me and she said, I've been looking for you all day. Could you please pray for my daughter? She's struggling with addiction. We weren't there for addiction. She's struggling with addiction. She's been addicted to meth for four years and I just want her to come home. Would you just pray? She's in tears, bawling. Why? Because she's drawn to the light of our shining because the light of Christ has risen upon us and because in a time where we should be doing worse than anybody else because our little girl is literally at the, at the brink of death, her brain activity has been brought down to where she doesn't even have an immune system anymore. It's simply telling her heart to beat and her lungs to breathe and her kidney system to filter. That's it. That's the only thing happening inside her body. Her brain signal looks like this. That's it. It's the bare minimum. That's where she's at. And yet people are being drawn to us and asking us to pray for their daughter who's hooked on meth. Not because of us, but because the light of Christ that's shining on us. Because as things got darker, when they saw things around us getting darker and we remained the same because we were standing in the place where Christ placed us, they were drawn to that. We found people that came to us and said, I don't even know why, but I wanted to come into this room. When I come in this room, it's, there's a peace in this room. 
Literally, they said that. People that don't even know God. The not Christian people said, there's something different when we come into this room. There's a peace here that's crazy. Why? It's because when you stand, as things around you get darker, people are drawn to the light of your shining, and they might not even know what's shining. They're just drawn. That's his desire for us. It's not that, that we would be people who are constantly stumbled and stumbling and constantly being picked up, but we would be those who would walk as though Jesus himself was keeping us from stumbling. And if you stumble, there's grace, yes, there's mercy, yes, there's forgiveness, yes. But the goal of our life is not to see how many times we can be rescued. The goal of our life is to see how close we can walk to him and keep from needing rescue constantly so that we actually can keep from stumbling. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that your grace comes and binds us up when our ship starts to get stretched and starts to creak and it looks like it's going to be torn apart. That Your grace comes and just wraps us and says, I've got you. It's not because your ship's so great. It's because of the one who created it. I'll come and I'll wrap you in my grace. And you'll face that storm and There'll be plenty more waves that come, and the next time that you feel like you're being torn apart, you run boldly into my presence. The next time you feel vulnerable, the next time you hear something or see something that causes you to want to go to a place less than what you're believing in this moment, you come running back to me, and there's more grace upon grace upon grace, and I'll just continue to wrap you and bind you up with my grace. 